So this week we've got Shannon Golden joining us as a special guest to talk about Coney 2012, which she knows a thing or two about. She does. I, I believe she has some expertise in the uh, area of Uganda. All right. And then let's see what else we got on the, on the list here. We're going to talk about uh, the This American Life, Mike Daisy goes to China, scam, retraction, fiasco, kerfluffle. Uh, kerfluffle of the highest order. <laughs> and then we've got a discussion of Hunger Games and other young adult novels that Arturo's been reading lately. <laughs> he is a twihard. There's no question about that. I, I, I watched, like, the first two minutes of the video and had to turn it off. I just couldn't stomach it, but... So I don't really know much about it. So Shannon, you can, can you say more about what you couldn't stomach? Oh, I don't know. I was just like cringing and I was like, I just didn't want to watch it. You know, I watched for about five minutes myself. And then there was a scene where he's like telling his little kid about Coney. And uh, I was like, that was, that's just kind of weird. Um, and I know John Stewart like did a bit on it, but I actually, that's where I stopped watching it. I was like, cause he was showing pictures of like child soldiers and he's like, do you know what this is? These are little kids that are getting killed. And his kid, who's like five years old, was like, oh, my God, why are you telling me this? And I just, you know, at that point, uh, I didn't really want to watch it anymore. But I hear it, hear good things from my students. I have a lot of students who watch the video and are pretty passionate about the issue all of a sudden. Well, I mean, I, the the how he started telling the story to his kid, it only, I mean, it continues from there on out. You'd think, okay, maybe he's introducing it in this simplistic way and then he'll get into more details but it really doesn't it stays pretty much at that level for the rest of the film <laughs> the five-year-old level yeah that's what I mean, i've heard yeah. from a lot of people that it's I, I haven't actually seen the video but i've only i'm only familiar with the backlash but uh yeah it from what i understand he quite dramatically oversimplifies the issue yeah i mean completely and of course like that's what can make a message come be communicated and mobilize young people really effectively. But this is a 30 minute video. You have some time to go into some level of detail and complexity here. This isn't like a one minute clip. Mm. So, kind of so Shannon, maybe you uh, can explain to those of us who might be a little bit in the dark, who and what exactly is this whole Coney thing about? Well, it's a, uh... So Invisible Children is an organization that started somewhere around 2004-2005 when this group of um, Americans went to East Africa and they discovered these night commuters, these kids who were walking into Gulu Town, which is the main town in northern Uganda, to escape uh, insecurity in their home villages. And so they kind of grew invisible children grew from there on out like talking about this previously undiscovered con you know conflict that had been going on like until they came nobody had ever talked about it which of course is not that's part of the criticism um that they've faced throughout throughout the years but so the conflict is uh was a war between the government of uganda and the lord's resistance army um, which was operating in Uganda for uh, over two decades, but now they're in the neighboring countries. Um, and so the the insecurity is pretty much over in northern Uganda. Um, and so who, yeah, I mean, who, I can, who and what is Kony then? How does this work into the thing? 
Okay, so Joseph Coney is the leader of the Lord's Resistance Army, this this um, rebel group. And they, you know, the origins of the movement are a little bit complicated, but it's he, he sort of started the movement in the late 80s in response to the marginalization of the northern region of the country um, and as a response to some of the political developments and a previous war that had been going on earlier in the country in which the the north was basically on the losing side of the previous war and so people in in the north were really concerned that their marginalization was going to actually increase with the with the new regime um, Museveni who's the who's the current current president now. Um, and so the rebel movement came about first as this response to perceive, to marginalization and perceived um, increase of persecution of the North, but since then has kind of escalated um, into a movement that has, has lost some of that original focus and is now notoriously known for abducting children and terrorizing the local population. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. <laughs> So this whole Coney 2012 is a campaign to, as they say, make Coney famous. And they mean that as, like, make what he has done be famous for how horrible it is. But but still, even that language is a little a little concerning and a little problematic to make him famous. Um, but that's, that's, that's a central figure that they're mobilizing around. The thing that I, from watching the video, um, like I said, I, I really only could make it a few minutes just because it was so overly dramatized they're like zooming out on the world now is the time 2012 is the year you know and all this stuff uh is that just like like that's actually a good why now like is there a particular reason they decided to like launch this massive campaign now is or is it just a coincidence that it kind of went viral in 2012 (laughs) you know i've there really isn't anything particularly unique about this this year, this particular moment in time in the span of this um, conflict that's been going on for almost for two and a half decades. I mean, to some extent, there's always urgency to end violence and end conflict that's going on. But 2012 doesn't present some particularly unique moment or unique opportunity that if we don't seize it now, it's gone. That's what I was Although wondering. that's definitely... Yeah. Yeah, because it's been going on a long time, and I'm like, did some? Is there some new development that I wasn't aware of, or not at all? Well, (laughs) one one thing I'm curious about that maybe folks can fill me in on is like, like I said, I'm only really familiar with the backlash to the campaign. The backlash Um, was such a beautiful thing. Yeah, but (laughs) one of the things that a lot of criticism focused on is that. These guys, it's three guys, right, essentially, that do the invisible children thing, more or less, right? Mm-hmm. These three or four guys. Um, yep. But anyway, one of the big criticisms that I read was that, like, their proposed solution to what's going on or their proposed, like, course of action is pretty problematic. But I couldn't really find out, because I didn't look for it, what that proposed course of action was. But, like, that's a big part of the controversy, too, right? Yeah, Definitely. So their proposed course of action is a military intervention. Oh, um, uh, okay. Yeah, which has been pretty disastrous in the past. It's never worked very well. Um, and they, I don't. Are you familiar with how beautiful it is in Iraq and Afghanistan right now? I mean, you, you can't you can't screw that stuff up. <laughs> right. Of course. Yeah. I mean, and their primary like ally to to 
to implement such military solution is a Ugandan army widely known for committing human rights abuses themselves. Okay. Uh, and, and, you know, they defend that saying, well, it's the lesser of two evils and we're being pragmatic about what we have to work with, but still very problematic. Yeah, definitely. Okay, I get it. I get, I much more understand the backlash. Yeah. So yeah, and, and I think there's a tail into that where failing to, or in addition to giving resources to the Ugandan army, there's also a suggestion that the United States should be more involved militarily than what they're doing now. I think there's, what, 100 military advisors from the United States that are in Uganda? Right. And they want to increase yep. that somehow. I, I admit that I don't know what the term military advisor means in this context. <laughs> On the other hand, though, isn't it? I mean, I guess just to argue the other side in a way, like, isn't there some kind of complacency if if a problem has existed for such a long time? And I mean, it, you got to imagine that people get frustrated. You know, what what can we do? Is there anything we can do? And I mean, Shannon, you know this much better than I do, but are people who are working on this issue, I mean, is there an issue of complacency that maybe this campaign can revitalize interest in this issue, or is it just all bad uh, that they're raising awareness? I mean, to me, it seems like there's two sides of it. There's the issue of, so you're talking about complacency and if it can revitalize interest in this. And in the case of Uganda, like people in Uganda, I don't think that that's necessarily true. People have been working on this issue. There are advocates and you know, activists and everyone, people on the ground working for peace, and they've been doing that for the past 30 years. So they don't really need this campaign to revitalize them. But in the, on the U.S. side, yeah, I mean, it's been a little, no, little known about conflict. So, right, there's this thing that you can debate. Is any awareness good awareness? I don't know. Yeah, there's always this thing about these kind of uh, efforts, too, where, you know, in in 2014, right, in all likelihood, I mean, maybe maybe something will develop and and this will change, but this has been happening for a while. So in 2014, will things be drastically different? And if they're not, are people, when you mention the name Joseph Coney to them, are they going to go like, oh, yeah, that guy from 2012, right? That's over, right? Because people have such a short attention span on these things. So you come out with some big dramatic push to get to you know raise awareness of some issue but i mean these are these are big problems you know i was thinking the same thing along the lines of how i guess for lack of a better word trendy it was to be concerned about darfur a couple years back and that's not very much different right now but all you know all the attention's gone away right yeah didn't that already happen i mean come on yeah, exactly. That's over, right? Like we, you know, Brad I haven't, Pitt I haven't made seen a viral. Yeah, I haven't seen a viral video about that in a really long time. So it must be good. Well, because actually, one of the criticisms I was reading of this Coney twenty twelve was that kind of like it was it was a really popular piece going around. I wish I could, I wish I could remember who wrote it. But this guy, it was uh, wrote about like the white savior complex. He called it. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we'll come up with a name and, and link it. But one of the arguments he was making is like how condescending of an idea it is that like, well, anything we do is better than nothing. And he was saying like, well, no, actually, what you're proposing could make it quite worse. And so, you know, doing nothing would actually be preferable to that. Yeah. Well, maybe we should get into the backlash because it was such a beautiful arc combining so many of my favorite things about what's wrong with social movements and such as social movements just completely destroying themselves in a very quick period of time this thing goes viral and i'm still not sure how it happened if it was 
some massive push by Invisible Children or if it was just a coincidence that enough powerful people in the world of social media picked up on it and all pushed for it at the same time. But the span of maybe 24 hours, it had been seen by, I've heard estimates from anywhere from 60 to 150 million people around the world. Mm-hmm. And along with that, almost immediately after it started to trend, the people who were saying this is probably not a good idea were also starting to get right into it. So you mm-hmm. had these two competing perspectives that were just on the rise for a 24 to 72 hour thing. And then uh, we'll get into the what happened in that time period in a second. But then not too much later, the leader and the face of the organization yes. apparently <laughs> goes crazy and just burns out completely. And now... It's just incredible that that happened. And he was arrested for something crazy like exposing himself in public or something? He was in his hometown of San Diego, California, completely naked, running around, uh, hulking out, is how I heard it described. You mean you didn't see um, that video either, Jesse? No, that sounds like yeah. a much more likely to go viral video, though. Yeah, I think enough people have seen did. that as well. <laughs> so he was naked, just kind of running around screaming, bashing his hands into the pavement, apparently messing with cars, like jumping on cars and stuff like that, blocking traffic, perhaps doing things um, more grosser than that. (laughs) that So initially people thought this is a drug thing, but then everyone has seemed to accept that he had some sort of psychotic breakdown. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And it's, it's just such a great microcosm of activism or slacktivism in the present age that I, it, it just can't get any better than that in such a short amount of time to have the rise of a movement, the counter to that movement and the total internal destruction of the people at the center of the movement. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, see, I, okay, sorry. I was going to say, I, I like that you can relish in that, but I think that's kind of a sad story in a way. Like, you know, I, Oh, I, I'm not, I'm t- a total bastard in relishing in it, but I just don't see like what's, What's good about it? Because, I mean, from my perspective, it did seem like that video was overly simplistic, but maybe that was its brilliance, right? Like, it just mobilized people on a very myopic topic, and we can all discuss about how that's problematic for various reasons, but that that was, it seems like, to be its sole purpose. And if it just collapses, I mean, I don't really know how that's a good thing either. It's just kind of, oh, that's sad. <laughs> like, so. Uh, Though I was going to say, kind of based off what John was saying about, like, you know, is this attention really helpful or good? And I mean, the one thing that kind of sad me about it is, you know, it actually is a very serious issue going on, like child soldiering. But like, as as Chris was pointing out, it became more like just like sort of any other trend. Like there was Team Coney and Team Not Coney or whatever, you know, and like yeah. it became much more and about it quickly like became about Jason about Russell, it. who's the guy who went crazy. Yeah. The film, just like in the film, it focuses on him and how he has to explain it to his kids and his family. And well, if, has anyone looked at the other films that are available at the Invisible Children website or through the YouTube channel? Because Which there's, other one? there are so many that they're basically music videos. There's one that features, it's, it kind of seems like a Jesus Christ Superstar thing, where there's a bunch of college kids, I suppose, in vans just kind of rolling, rolling through the desert, uh, vaguely saying political statements, but Uganda or Kony, nothing is mentioned. There's one that's basically a, uh, a parody or homage to Glee, 
where they're dancing around in a high school where Uganda and Kony are not mentioned. So it kind of seems like maybe the whole Invisible Children project was for these three people that started it, a way to get their foot in the door for making, like becoming music video directors or making an independent film or something far more than the message or the movement that they're concerned with. Or yeah. it's just a PR campaign that's ahead of its time or ineffective or something like that. But it's, you were going to say something, Sheldon. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. It's, it's really interesting how, yeah, the entire thing is really a story about them. Right. But this is, right. Like, this is not something new. This is something that a lot of these type of advocacy campaigns do, or like people raising awareness about human rights abuses in other parts of the world. Like people like sitting in the U S don't have a way to understand that unless, or, or we think they can't understand that unless it, the story is told through some, you know, American traveler and you, you're experiencing right. it and learning about it with that person that you can relate to. I mean, so that's not necessarily new, although, I mean, I do still think it's problematic, but it really seems to be the only, one of the only ways that you can mobilize like broad support to, to hear these stories it's through the story of a Westerner experiencing this story. Right. It's definitely an old trope. There's no question about yeah. that. But, and I think some of the things I was reading of it were sort of that criticism that it, it, in a lot of ways feels like it's more about these guys and, and what they're doing as opposed to, well, like you said, there's a lot of work in Uganda being done on this. And I'd be, I mean, I'd just be really interested to see how people in Uganda react to this kind of, you know, savior advocacy there were a few ugandan people uh, from activists to just ordinary citizens who put out some clips who said that they weren't that impressed and they thought that it was a a gross mischaracterization of what was going on and oversimplified there was also a a rather exploitive bit from i think the bbc where they went to some village where they were they screened the film and then tried to get reactions from people there. Hmm. And, and in that one, even though I think they were massaging the, the situation to get the reaction they wanted, people were, were you know, yelling at the screen saying, this is ridiculous, that, you know, this is just a story about these white people, and so on and so forth. Now, I heard something on NPR maybe a week ago saying that there was a, like some operation now in effect, either by the U.S. government or the U.N. to hunt Coney. Is that true or not? The um, the African Union has put together a force of about five thousand troops, I believe, of uh, from the countries where the LRA has been active, from the Central African Republic, Sudan, DRC, and Uganda. I think just those four. Yeah, and they've said that the mission will continue until Kony is captured. And is this a new mission, or has it been going on it's, for a couple? It's new, and so a lot of it, I do think, has. I mean, I don't know exactly, but I do think some of it has been from the international attention that this video has produced. Certainly. And so, I mean, I guess that's where I, I, I kind of like feel like, okay, it's problematic and other people have been doing this work for a long time. But if it can conjure up like enough political will or international pressure where something does happen, and I, I concede that that might not really solve any really big thing. But if somebody feels compelled to say, hey, I don't know how to solve 
all of these problems, but I just know that this one guy is bad. <laughs> I mean, but I good- think that's part of the problem is that like it's not just as simple as Joseph Coney being bad. Like, I mean, the, there's, you know, like Shannon already pointed out, there's been a lot of problems with the government forces and stuff. And it's just that, like, I don't know that it necessarily solves anything by all of a sudden having, like, a large armed group hunting down a singular person, right? Like, uh, I mean, it's it's just both ways. Like, Archer, I get what you're saying. And in this in this situation, it's just so complex. And it's just like, well, nothing else seems to have worked. At this point, what do you do, right? As much as I would say I never advocate a military solution, but it, it does become, I don't know, it's hard to know what to do. But then on the other hand, Jesse is, you know, you're spot on. It's not just about Coney as this one evil guy. And military solutions have not worked at all in the past. They've just made things worse. So what do you do? You know? Yeah, the African Union doesn't have the best track record in accomplishing its accomplishing its missions. Right. So. Well, I mean, to be fair, there's basically no a state military that has been successful in accomplishing its missions for about at least the past 30 years. So I saw the banner on that aircraft carrier. What are you talking about? <laughs> Precisely. But I think the, the big point here is, well, for me, I don't want to speak for everyone, is this whole notion of awareness is a good thing. Right. Because I think awareness is such an empty term these days because the whole point presumably is to have action taken. Towards or political will towards something, yeah. Yeah, but awareness is, it kind of falls flat. Like, some people well, might do something, some people might remember it past the three days or a few weeks that it's on their mind, but it's a question of whether is, they're willing to act on it, and it's just, it's hollow yeah, to me. The problem is that awareness is one step in a process that has been elevated to, like, a status of its own, right? Like, yeah, awareness yeah. is the first step in solving a problem, but awareness has somehow been elevated to largely solving the problem itself, apparently. So, you know, yeah. that's it's like the ridiculous pink ribbon stuff. Like, you know, there's we're we're past that point. Like every everybody's pretty well certain there, you know, breast cancer's a problem and we should do something about it. Like See, I just don't have that cynicism because I, I feel like I know that my kids the kids in my class aren't gonna solve this problem. I know that they're never gonna be super aware of what's going on. And I don't think it's really on them. To necessarily solve this problem, but if they're quote unquote now aware and they're putting up posters and they contribute to some kind of political pressure that wasn't there before, I mean, I think it, it changes the game. And for the people who are actually doing that work, um, I don't know if it's a it's a, a bad force that this is a game changing you know situation for them. I mean, so no. I, I don't know. Just saying, like, well, yeah, you know, it's really naive. I mean, I, I can see that it's totally naive of these kids to think that they can solve the problems. But I'm not sure if awareness and the impetus to do something now. I mean, the fact is that nobody, at least you know, here in Sacramento, really knew what was going on until two, three weeks ago, and they probably won't care six weeks from now. But I don't think it. They would have cared anyway, and maybe this new pressure does something that down the line no, but- might. But the point I was trying to make is that awareness is a, a tool, right? So it's not it's not inherently good or bad in and of itself. So you're right that a, like making people aware of the issue could definitely lead to political pressure, which could lead to positive change. But it could also do, like John pointed out earlier, you know, m- make it appear when that you know awareness goes away that like, oh, well, the issue must be fine, or it, you know, it also can serve a very sort of conscience clearing by like oh yeah dude i bought an invisible children t-shirt i did my part you know mm-hmm. and then that political will goes away very quickly and then you know it can be safely scuttled away you know and so it's 
And like, if you see these, oh, sorry, Jesse, I didn't want to cut. No, you. I was done. I was done. If you, I mean, the Invisible Children is—they're a slick group. I mean, their their films are very well produced. Their their materials are very well designed. So if you see a really well designed poster that has this nice logo that says Invisible Children, or if you see someone wearing the wristband or putting up a sticker, they're still not even necessarily on that material connection to what's going on in Uganda. It's just you could think it's a band. You could think, you know, whatever you want to think about it. It's not, it's not anything, really. And that seems to be obvious to me. And, and that's the problem with awareness. I mean, it's... Arturo, Artur, you said there's awareness and then there's taking action. And those are two separate things. And yeah, but I don't a think... a ton he, of awareness, but not that much taking action. But you, you don't really expect these Americans to take action. I mean, I'm just saying... People join movements for all sorts of different motiva- motivations, and it could be because some tear-jerking video made them connect and relate to Ugandans in a way that makes sense to them. But like the world is not waiting on these kids to solve this problem, even if they think it is. But being aware, wearing the poster, I think it does something. I think it does create this like momentum that maybe somewhere else feels that pressure. And I think... You know, I, I just don't begrudge anybody for, you know, thinking that they can do something good by bringing awareness. And I, I agree, it doesn't always lead to great things. But I remember having a similar conversation. You know, there's that shoe company where you can like, I don't like uh, wear. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So a lot of the the students, I keep saying kids. A lot of the students, <laughs> young intelligent young adults. Yeah, yeah. like don't be dismissive. They, um, you know, they really are into this Tom's uh, shoe thing, right? Where they pay twice the price for the Tom shoes, with the understanding that the Tom's factory will buy a pair of shoes for somebody in Latin America, I believe. And then there's that day where they don't wear shoes at all. Yeah. yeah, so I don't know. It's like April 5th or something like that, and I see all these college students walking around with bare feet. And they're trying to bring awareness through to you know the fact that like a lot of diseases that people get from walking on soil in Latin America, you know, causes all these problems. But, you know, I've heard a lot of critiques showing, you know, there are a lot of shoes in Latin America, you know, and there's markets full of shoes that sell them all over the place. And it is naive to think that that's really what's going to solve the problem but i i guess i just don't get mad that somebody's trying to raise awareness for an issue that these young adults wouldn't otherwise really care about well no it's it's not but again it's not the awareness raising it's the possibility and i might more cynically say probability that it stops at that pair of shoes and that not only that it stops at that pair of shoes but that that pair of shoes allows them to feel as if they've done their part, as if like they can then check out of the process, right? And that's really dangerous if people stop at the shoes because, as you point out, the shoes are not going to do it. Or, and that's yeah. that's the problem. I mean, it's not a given, right? It's just that it can go either way. Mm-hmm. Or, or this dis- discourse that's just really prevalent in the Coney video and, and other things like that, that we, by doing this, by putting up these posters and getting this action kit... We will stop this. Mm. I mean, and so, yeah, to raise awareness, if you're looking at that kind of as an inward-focused thing, like this is good for us to know about this, that's one thing. But if you have this really prevalent discourse that this that we are about to stop this thing, I mean, it's not, or on the other side, that 
what you're advocating, if you don't have a deep knowledge of this thing that you're trying to stop, what you're advocating could actually be more of a problem than a solution. You know, sending in these ill-equipped militaries and I don't know. Yeah, that's, it, it I mean, that's exactly... Awareness is fine if the message is good and responsible. Yeah, yeah. That, that point about... There, there seems to be this huge gap between awareness, this like really sort of shallow, superficial level thing, and taking action and people wanting to jump from one to the other really quickly and like solve the problem. And I mean, that's what you were getting at, Shannon, I think, is that like mm -hmm. we talk we talk about, well, there's awareness and then there's actually doing something. And actually, there's this pretty big gulf between those two. If you really want to do something that like involves real understanding of complicated issues and really taking the time, like the long, sustained, painful journey of reading books and you know <laughs> talking to Gross. people and and really learning about something and then also like you know critically evaluating the way this complicated issue fits into the larger world and your own place in it and it's like that depth that bugs me that i think and i don't know i mean i try not to be like yeah. reflexively against things like this but i think that's what's missing is that they want to go oh i can buy the action kit and therefore I've done something or I can buy shoes and therefore I've done something without really thinking the whole thing through and really changing the way they think about things. And sort of piggybacking off that, John, too, I think another problematic part of it is we've already touched on it a little bit, this kind of white man's burden aspect to it, yeah. that it not only presents a very problematic picture of Africa in general or Uganda specifically, but also that, you know, as Shannon pointed out, there's plenty of people in Uganda working on this issue and these invisible children folks aren't helping them they've somehow come into Uganda and just instantly know better than all these people who have been working on this issue for a long time and have their own plan, you know? And so it'd be one thing if they were working with Ugandans to try to solve Uganda's problems, but instead they're this, like, small group of privileged American kids saying, oh, hey, Uganda, I can figure out your problems. And that was the first part of the backlash was the, the way the organization handles its resources, where I think it's still the case that and, and they're very successful at fundraising. A third of what they take in makes it back to Uganda in some fashion. And it's unclear about what shape that takes. The rest of it is spent on making these films and on organizing people to be in these films, pretty much. And operational expenses, which is, you know, first-class travel for these guys to go around and bring their cameras. So I wouldn't feel too comfortable with giving money to that if that's how I knew it was being spent. The other thing is the dis not just the discourse of race and place that's deeply problematic in this case, but also the discourse of the rhetoric of the organization itself. It goes one of two ways. It's either a really cheesy PR campaign or it's a really disturbing – I don't know the right word to use – the ethic, the, the, the note that I got when, when I was viewing the materials was this seems just like a youth ministry. And the same kind of fatalism I've seen in anti-abortion stuff or in anything that, that far-right Christianity is mobilizing for, the same rhetoric, the same tactics I see coming out mm -hmm. of the school children. And I think that's a problem. How do you mean? It's Give us this, some examples. Your participation in this conflict, now that we're bringing you in, now that you're aware, is that it should consume your life, that it is a fundamental moral imperative that you participate, that the ends which you are seeking 
are radical and revolutionary, that it should be this all-consuming thing that you are part of this revolutionary generation. You know, you, you see that on the left and the right, but in both cases, it's pretty freaky <laughs> if it's taken to that extreme. And here, no one seems to point about it because it's an organization that, as I said, has already kind of destroyed themselves internally, but also because it's a cause that, even if you disagree with the way they've done it, no one's going to really necessarily defend the Lord's Resistance Army or anything like that. But say this was about some issue on which a domestic issue, say it was about abortion or one of those classic wedge issues, to see a bunch of people with this kind of rhetoric would be really disturbing if the target was different. You know what? I actually thought you were crazy when you made that comparison, but uh, now I'm on board. (laughs) I see it. Yes. (laughs) And the racial thing is is interesting. It's, It's in a lot of ways unfortunate because the issue is in a lot of ways, not really about race. It's about humanity and these other things, but it's in a context where race is going to be an important part of it. And I feel like people who are involved in advocating for an issue who are based in California and, and trying to do work in Africa would be more aware of that and would have a more sophisticated way of putting that across. I mean, is there anyone, is there anyone who's involved in a, an issue of, of global importance who isn't aware of things like the white man's burden and the bad history that has happened. And, you know, it seems something obvious to me and I'm shocked that that wasn't a part of it. Yeah. You know, in some, in their rebuttal, invisible children, you know, they've put up some videos and um, written statements uh, responding to some of these critiques. And they say that everything that we put in this film and that we've done is very intentional. We've thought about everything. So, yeah. Responding to that point, Chris, yeah, I think they're aware of that, but they still decided to do it in this particular way. And that's part of the problem, and part of the problem I have with awareness, that I'm happy with awareness if it's part of something bigger, and if it's not this reductive message that falls into the same traps that we've seen before, you know? Well, I think, you know, somebody who also does stuff with, like, social problems that at times there's these kind of cottage industries that just develop and become like an industry into itself of highlighting a problem and talking about it and releasing brochures about it. Like I, I understand the critiques of these things just, just exist for themselves in a way of creating more conferences and creating more awareness and more events. And, uh, and I, I, I think it's important to critique it, but I do think there is a place for moral outcry whether or not we think it's problematic or not for certain issues. And unfortunately, I think people just won't do anything without that moral outcry. And there is no solution that's not problematic. There is no intervention that doesn't have um, unknown, unintended consequences down the line. And if you want to participate, you just have to unfortunately be problematic and participate. And so I, I always feel like that's kind of a privilege of academics to like step back and critique these movements. And I think we should, I think that is like yeah. the unique quality of us, but I do think there is another side. I think there's like spaces for people who are just making moral outcries of issues. I, I, even though that's not really my thing, I kind of see it as important because it motivates people who are tangentially relate connected to the issue or not connected at all. And um, that's why I, I, I think that's why I'm kind of arguing on this other position. Like I, I, I thought the video was cheesy. 
I, I of course, feel weird that my students are putting up these posters. But I, I similarly think it's like, I don't know, a little bit of, you know, academic sitting back. I kind of resent also just like sitting back and saying, well, look at all these problems that this campaign can cause. And I don't, it's not clear to me that this campaign has caused problems. And I think that's an empirical question that needs to, to play itself out over time. Yeah, no, I mean, I would just say, though, in fairness, I mean, I don't, I would be willing to argue that amongst this small group, I'm one of the more angry at academics sitting back and analyzing things instead of doing anything about it. But, you know, you also have to separate that impulse from this specific case. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely agree that, yeah, at a certain point, you just got to go, you know, and it, the problems can be solved later. But I think just from, again, you know, I'm not an expert on this case by any means, uh, which is why Shannon's here to be an expert. <laughs> but, uh, I, I mean, I, I do feel like that in this particular case, from what I've read, the the problematic parts seem to outweigh the potential benefits. But, no, I definitely, I get your point, though. Yeah, it, it is very easy for us to sit here and say, well, I'm not going to get involved unless it's absolutely perfect. And I mean, we have to take some responsibility for, as academics, you know, we can shape the direction that these things take. So, you know, Arturo, your students come in fired up about this campaign or the campaign that it was last month or whatever. You have a chance to redirect their energies or like help them understand more about the situation or learn about it together, whatever, you know, and that can actually mobilize that energy in a positive way. But yeah, that's true. So, Ooh, I like that. Also, <laughs> on the one hand, it's always, I mean, I think the goal for a lot of us to try and make it so that when academics talk, it's not some ivory tower comment, but it's part of the public discourse. The awareness still being a good thing and possibly transforming into something else. This whole campaign would have been awesome if it had been when Kony was still in Uganda six years ago. But given that oh, not sad. only that there are overarching <laughs> problems with their approach... This is massively dated. Even leaning on the Ugandan army is a questionable tactic, even if they had a great track record. You know? See, this is going to be a good transition to when we talk about the whole iPad controversy. So before, I mean, I don't know how long we're going to talk about this, but before Shannon goes, I do want to mention, or before we change the subject, at least, I, you're happy to, welcome to stick around, of course. I don't know. You said you were. Nobody wants to hang around this. <laughs> Yeah, not necessarily. And if you guys talk about one topic for an hour, I don't know if I can be here the next four hours. <laughs> oh, we're, we're it's like 40 minutes. We're, we're, we're just getting started. But no, I wanted to say that you did. Uh, there's an interview on the societypages.org slash office hours that Shannon Golden did with Amy Finnegan. A, uh, a, where's she at? She's at Minnesota, right? But She's at Minnesota, yeah. She's um, in, in Rochester. That's right, Rochester. I, I was going to say Duluth, but I knew that was wrong. Um, but yeah, so if you're interested in this discussion we've had here, you should go listen to that. What's that discussion? A lot of similarities to what we've already talked about, but um, she's truly an expert on this situation because she just finished her dissertation. She's a sociologist um, on invisible children. So she can speak, she speaks a little bit more about that organization in particular and their engagement with um, local activists in Uganda. So it's pretty interesting. We should have gotten her instead of you. <laughs> yeah, I know. Seriously. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, thanks, yeah. yeah, thanks for having me. It was super interesting. And, you know, thanks for doing your part to raise awareness. <laughs> 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 and get <Shoot>. something critically. <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh, so, bring it all back home. I love it. Tell us what you think. Email podcast at the society pages.org. Because I similarly think that, like, <laughs> even though, like, there might be factual inaccuracies, if there's a general story that is somewhat accurate. Oh, here we go. I knew does I it really... was going to be a sympathizer on this. <laughs> so pure-hearted. Oh, How can you? Okay. No, I'll, let's hear it out. I'm just saying, like, when I heard the This American Life, at one point, like... You liked it, glad... didn't you? What? The... This American I, I just... Life. I mean... Oh, I, I love it, but I think <laughs> that that retraction episode was too much for me. And where Ira Glass was like highlighting all of like the inaccuracies of the iPad story, but at one point I was just like, okay, you concede that like some of the issues that he's speaking to are true and they have happened, but the guy clearly lied about like which town it happened or that he witnessed it, and it is problematic that he cl- that he was kind of telling the story in a journalistic way. At the same time, it doesn't change their overall circumstance. And if it brought some awareness to that issue, okay, so there's some factual inaccuracies. Like, is that does that change fundamentally what's yes. going on? First of yes. all, flip yes. the scripts. Say what? Flip it. Flip it. <laughs> Again, if, if he was doing this, <laughs> if if uh, is it Mike Daisy? Is that the right name? Yep. If he was doing this about an issue with which you disagreed presenting all this evidence, quote-unquote, that supported his side of it, and you mm-hmm. weren't down with that, would you still appreciate what he had done, or would you consider it a horrible, offensive embarrassment to the profession or whatever it is? So if I was a big sweatshop proponent... No, but <laughs> say, like, I mean, take another issue, like, another... Like, say it was abortion, and let's say he was totally against abortion, and he came up with all these horrific stories about problems in late-term abortion that were somewhat based off of some rare cases, but that he made sound really common or that he made sound, you know, far more horrific than they were. But I get Chris's point. It's it's sensational. I mean, it's not inaccurate, but it's being sensationalistic. It's He didn't witness these things. He heard of them, and and he tells it in this overly cheesy voice of, I saw 13-year-olds, I saw 12-year-olds, I saw 11-year-olds. And then they made this big point that, like, no, you didn't. You didn't see a 12-year-old. You didn't see an 11-year-old. Yes, 90% of the factories that Apple has does have problems with underage kids, but he did not see a 13-year-old there. And I go, okay, the guy definitely was being sensationalistic, and he was – trying to develop a moral outcry. And yeah, I do feel like cheated and I feel like that's that's not great. But hold on, I don't think, to me, it's like Ira Glass getting upset about the story it wasn't really that important. It was like, well, I never really heard about where iPhones are made and I didn't really understand that iPads are still made by hand. Or, you know, that there's... I mean, an, I mean it brought well, hold on awareness. I think... Should we back up a little bit? Is it is it possible that there are people listening out there in the world in our massive audience that don't actually know what the situation is with uh, the Mike Daisy and this American Life thing. Is it worth a brief recap? Yeah, I mean, sure. But yeah. but there is a connection, though, right? I mean, you are seeing, like, there's a similar... Oh, I see the connection. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Oh, yeah. I think, it's, I think it's, a, it's a very good transition, actually. But basically, for those who don't know, right? So basically, D- Mike Daisy does a monologue about how he went to China... And, and witnessed all these horrible things at the factories that make 
at, at Foxconn factories that make the, you know, iPhones and iPads along with other things, right? I mean, it's worth mentioning that, you know, Apple's so insanely popular that everyone focuses on this, but like, this is where all of our electronics are pretty much made. Like any computer you buy, any tele, like all the parts that make up all the electronics we have pretty much come from these, these kind of factories, right? Um, so it's just kind of worth throwing out there. Uh, but anyway, and he, he has this monologue where he talks about how he went to China and he found this uh, translator and they went to all these different factories and he talked to underage workers. He talked to a guy who couldn't use his hands anymore because they were he got poisoned by something. He talked to people who were involved in like this explode. Like basically what he did is looked at these are all things that have happened. Like people have been injured because of poor working conditions in these factories. There are cases, I guess, of, you know, of underage children working in China, right? And he just takes these real things and makes it sound like he went there for a week and witnessed all of them, which gives you the impression, of course, that these things are like, like, this is what, like, this is the norm, right? It's not just that these things happen, but it's that this is the norm, you know, the people who built your iPad, they're all children who aren't going to be able to walk in a year, um, you know, because they're being poisoned while they're building these things 24 hours a day, you know, and it's, and, you know, worse, he, he did lie. He said, he, you know, he used the first person to talk about these things. I talked to these people. I saw this. And what's interesting to me, though, is, you know, I mean, and I, and I get what, like to go back to what Jesse was was trying to to get at earlier, Arturo is like, say he was a I don't know an anti-immigration activist, right? And he told all these horror stories, and you hear this about how well you know my my sister can't get health care, but the immigrants have it. You know, um, my kid their their school they don't have you know new books or their there's you know, good, you know, they're, they have 50 kids in the class, but those immigrants get to go to school and they tell these stories that make it seem like, you know, the, the normal situation is that immigrants come to the United States and live this rich, luxurious life while right. working stiff Americans struggle, you know, and it's the same kind of thing. It's the same kind of storytelling that takes little kernels of truth and embellishes them to make them seem like they're the norm and that's actually what's really going on in the service of some greater good. And that's the excuse. Like that's the language he used is, well, there's a, there's a greater truth that he's telling there. But the, I mean, here's the thing is that I'm, but it's ob- not small kernels though. I mean, that's the thing. Like I understand what you're saying when somebody, did comes you listen in- to the third act of the, 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 yeah. Cause, cause yeah. the third act was they talked to like someone at the New York times, the, the expert. And he was yeah. like, Oh, they've never had that poisoning at that factory. And they do have, <laughs> the poisoning with the hand issue, but that factory is 90 miles away. I mean, that yeah, was the point but, but where that's I just, got like, are you kidding me? Like, no, that's a, that, compl- that makes a huge difference. It's, it's a huge difference. If like an entire industry, there's a factory or two or 10 for that matter, where this has happened versus saying, I went to a factory and saw this and saw this and saw this. He, and it's he, all still going on. Said in, in, 90% in, of the factories have had issues with underage workers. Like, that's beyond norm. That is, like, the majority of the factories. Now, he lied about the 11, 10-year-old, and he lied about the guns at the factory doors. And I think that was totally wrong. But I don't think it is, like, he took a kernel of truth and then 
created this like you know exaggerations that a non-representative sampling of what's going on like it actually sounded like he he wasn't just exaggerating claims it was I like didn't, i didn't take notes but my impression from listening to the last part was that it was not like oh well 90 percent of what he said was true it was but but i mean here here's the thing i don't want to come across as the apologist for foxconn and <laughs> the working conditions in china because i think a i think for the first thing is that you know they're you know the, the other side to this is that they're you know they put out notice that they're going to hire 3000 people and they get 5000 people waiting out line you know outside in line to get a job like these are very desirable jobs for whatever you know negative aspects those jobs have you know and clearly there are worse things to do in china than work in these factories right and will those but like do i think that the conditions should improve yes absolutely i think they should should people who buy the products in the united states make the connection between the working conditions of the people making them and you know the low prices that they pay for them yes they should and they should be supportive of movements to democratize government and workplaces and the economy in china yes they should but you know it really seriously undercuts the cause when you have people do stuff like this it complete it, in fact it's that's why i think it's so similar to the invisible children thing is that invisible children delegitimizes serious movements that are trying to get people's attention about you know joseph coney and the lord's resistance army because it makes them feel like that's all there is to it and you know someone who listened to mike daisy and thought maybe maybe made those connections and was starting to think critically about you know the the the, the environmental and social and you know global costs of the technology they were using then they find out that he's lying, and it just undercuts the whole thing. I, I want to let okay. I want to let Jesse respond because I know he's been hitting the keyboard trying to butt in. But he's been hitting the keyboard. I thought sorry, some, sorry no. he was anticipating. Like I want to go. So my keyboard doesn't actually work. You are right that I've been chomping at the bit. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to throw out my three quick things. I mean, one going off of what John is saying, kind of what you're both saying actually, is that he didn't. What what bugs me on some level about this is he didn't need to dramatize what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's already clearly horrible conditions. Like, there's no need to jazz it up. Like, let it speak for itself. But I would say, like, the other two ways I'm upset by this is, like, one, as a social scientist, like, I get annoyed by people who don't, you know, I mean, who don't let the facts speak. And I think it's also because, like, it, it, it doesn't just make him look bad, like, People, I, I definitely think, because what he was doing was what people think ethnography is, even yeah. though it's much more rigorous than that. Yeah. And when you get a very prominent example of that, I feel like it, it is injurious to me because it makes what I do look bad, um, even though I would, I'm would i far more rigorous than he was even attempting to be in the first place. But And then, but even just as like somebody who dabbles in like writing, it's insulting because like... There's, I mean, just from the literary aspect of it, I've read several things about this, and, you know, like, nonfiction well outsells fiction in America because, you know, it, it's so much more interesting if it's a true story, right? And, and like, there's a whole parallel thing going on with David Sedaris because people point out, like, he lies all the time in his supposedly true stories that he tells on NPR, and so somebody tried to draw that parallel. But even in something like that, it's just, it's a cheap trick, essentially, to, like, take 
story that you know you've heard and presented in these like lurid details of you experienced it, and one that again I ultimately don't think he needed to do because the conditions are terrible in a lot of these factories, and there's no. Like, and, and as John points out, like, it really weakens the cause because, you know, I mean, you could just, it's a tailor-made Rush Limbaugh narrative, right? Like, you see, when liberals tell you about bad things going on overseas, they're just making it up, you know, and like that kind of thing. Yeah, I, 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 I like what you said, like, in terms of he didn't need to make up the issues. and But what I had issues with myself was just when I listened to the retraction story, like I did kind of take notes because I wanted to know like what was fact and what, what was not. Sure. And when I listened closely, like it wasn't like taking a small kernel of truth and extending it. Like it were all these like things that clearly pointed out that he wasn't there, but what he actually reported, like the reporter conceded, oh, those things are true. Like yeah, actually, but that's not where they make the iPad. But there is reporting of workers dealing with hands being disformed because of this right, but- chemical that they use. And like, okay, that's messed up that he lied about it. But there was one point where our glass was like, you know, I'm not sure if I feel so bad now that I know this. And I was like, well, it's because you're reframing the picture. And I don't think reality as is as clear-cut as Ira Glass was trying to make it seem. Like, it's all black and white. And I think that sometimes, like, listening to This American Life for several years, like, you can tell that, like, it's interesting that all the stories flow in a particular way because it's the same people putting together those stories. Right. And I think they do that a lot more than they're willing to concede. And, and I'm glad that they, like, stepped back and, and, and retracted the story. But at one point, when I was listening to the details that they were picking apart... I was like, okay, I understand that it clearly shows that this guy is not trustworthy, but you're you're damning what is known about the situation. And there was, you know, and that's why I appreciated that third act. But it was like, are you kidding me? Like 90% of the factories have this issue? Like that should be that part of the story. And so that's why I felt kind of ambivalent. I was like, well, yeah the guards don't have guns and he couldn't have seen what he's claimed to have seen. But it's not like he lied about that stuff what? so since you keep saying this 90 number can i correct it i'm looking at the transcript uh okay. it says that around apple apple's own audit says in 2010 that in china apple found 10 facilities where 91 underage workers were hired oh so that's 90 out of hundreds of thousands not 90 percent <laughs> but anyway. uh, how many factories did they audit though i don't know it says out of hundreds of thousands of workers here, I'm looking. Uh, this was actually in the news. I don't know if anyone saw this today, but the, um, oh, what are they called? The Fair, Fair, Labor, Fair Association? Labor Association? They yeah. came out with their report. Um, it's pretty crazy. The, let, me, let me see if I can find the summary real quick. But they did something like 35,000 interviews or something nuts like that. Anyway. Yeah, and most of the violations seem to be managerial, having to do with things like overtime and pay and things like that. Yeah. More <laughs> than safety, I suppose. Yeah, here, I'll put a link to it. 35,000, they did 35,000 randomly selected interviews. I think it was on a, yeah, let me look this up. On a Twitter, I think it was Kieran Healy was joking about this. He, he, he did the numbers and he said that it takes 75 people each doing three 15-minute interviews an hour for 40 hours a week to interview 36,000 people in a month. <laughs> That's massive. <laughs> like... Uh, yeah. yeah, going on to say like, you know, uh, oh, his next comment was then you'd have to hire a grad student to clean all the data. Um, 
but yeah the the point being like social scientists would kill to have that kind of <laughs> massive data yeah <laughs> 35,000 interviews in like a month or something um anyway sorry I, that was cool how much do they pay their interviewers maybe we got two issues here <laughs> i would say i mean i would say actually the i am upset with this guy for the same reason arturo's ambivalent about it in that yeah, essentially he was right, but he definitely lied about some specifics. And I am upset about it in the sense that, like, you, you didn't need to lie. And the yeah. lie, and now the story is about the lie instead of about the real problems that exist. And that's, like, my biggest beef with it. But see, there, like, there, there are parallels, though. So, like, the New York Times, they actually ran, a, like, I think it was a two- or three-part series just a month or two ago. On this topic, like, they went to China, they did the research, they wrote up, like, what are the conditions at the factory, what are the violations that are happening, what do we know about this, you know, what, what, and, like, you know, what are the pros and cons of what's happening, you know, and it was good, it was thorough, it was, but, you know, it's not like you could take it and read it on a stage and have people hang on every word, you know, there is something about what he's doing, you know, the monologue where you're telling first person stories that has power. And, you know, he's clearly taking advantage of that. You know, like, I don't know if he if he if you can do what he does and just get up there and talk. Right, but, <laughs> but he could. But, but if he presented it as like, these are the stories I heard or like this was told. It's like such a simple way to, like, keep all of the impact of the story without lying is my thing. Or at least it certainly seems like it. You know, but. It's kind of interesting. I was um, talking to, to this anthropologist about this issue of, and I, I might have mentioned this before in this podcast, so stop me if I have, but like the idea of creating composite characters in your, in your reporting. And there's like this interesting debate in anthropology during the 80s about whether or not, you know, you can fictionalize certain aspects of your research. You know, if you accept that your perception of what went on in your, Fieldwork wasn't exactly an objective account of what occurs because that's not possible. If if just for the sake of reporting on a situation, you create composite characters where you instead of like introducing two individuals that you interviewed, you put them together, and that's that's not frowned upon at all. Actually, he was telling me that like that's pretty normal. Um, and for the sake of the narrative, and for the sake of um, telling a coherent story that's seen as okay and like as an anthropologist as a sociologist like i was like i feel kind of weird about that right i feel like like what you're saying jesse that this guy hurts our the public perception of ethnography (laughs) so do anthropologists yeah but apparently so the anthropologists because that's like (laughs) yeah well no one takes anthropologists seriously so (laughs) but you know this idea of composite characters i mean that's what i'm i'm thinking that this guy does it's like you know, he's creating moral outcry. Is he a reporter? No. Is he a sociologist? No. And, like, should people be treating that kind of sensationalistic accounts as fact? No. But if it motivates people to then go to another source. And I guess when he said, listen, I regret going on this show and not acknowledging that there are certain journalistic, you know, standards that I can't follow. I think that makes sense to me. And Ira Glass is like, I just think that's so not normal. I think that you're, and I was like, no, I, I, that made sense to me. I think people do that all the time. They sensationalize their accounts of something. And if you're not 
tie down to this kind of rigorous retelling of it. I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? Like this whole idea of composite characters. I mean, I wouldn't yeah. feel comfortable doing it, but some Except people he's, do. He's the composite character. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like, you have to let people know that it's a composite. Ca- you know, you have yeah. to say like this is not literally what happened. You know, I mean, like that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Declare the way in which you constructed the character. Right, you have to give some parameters, you know, otherwise you're just making up stories. And even if it's a great story, like, that's not, something fundamentally not, that I can't get on board with there. I, I will say, Arturo, you know, you said you grew impatient with that episode. And so did I, but maybe for a different reason, because I thought Ira Glass's anger at Mike Daisy, I thought it was justified, but at the same time, I think the lack of anger at him in, and the show <laughs> is kind of... I thought like that reaction was necessary in order to deflect all the anger at him because <laughs> you know what? Oh, definitely. You know what? You put the guy on the show. You didn't do. You know, did yeah, it not occur? To, did it not occur <laughs> to you that it sounded like this was all a little too good to be true with the story this guy was telling? I mean, I didn't. I didn't listen to this show, so I, I listened to the retraction. I didn't actually listen to the original one when it came out. So. You know, I, I don't know. I can't like give you a if I, you know what my reaction was at the time. But you hear the story now and you're like, come on, really? You know, you, you guys go on to say that you're a journalistic radio show that holds yourself to those standards. But then you let this you, you put this guy on. Really? I mean, I mean, I don't know. I got to say and, yeah. and this American life is kind of to me. I've never thought of it as a news show or a journalist. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, thought it, it's storytelling. That way. It is, but yeah. this, you know, this does kind of, you know, this changed the way I think about the show a little bit. You know, because they do some things that are definitely more storytelling. You know, it's like oh, yeah. some story of something crazy that happened at some family's summer vacation. You know what I mean? Like, and then they'll have a have something where they look at like the kinds of things that'll be on Planet Money or something that they'll do on This American Life too. That are more exposés on the way something works in the world, and that's a you know. Which, which standard am I supposed to apply to each feature that they run, you know? <laughs> like, they do a lot of David Cetera stuff, right? So they exactly. Should, exactly. They need to retract that stuff when he worked at the, uh, what was it, that store that he worked as one of Santa's little elves. I mean, did they get <laughs> multiple elves to report whether or not David was really there? Well, no, I was actually saying there was somebody who went through and actually fact-checked David Cetera's <laughs> stories off of there. And it turns out that a lot of it he made up. And, you know, it's, you know, again, and and he was kind of drawing this parallel and, you know, it's even in a low stakes environment. A lot of people said, well, it doesn't matter if you made it up. It's entertaining, Uh, you know, and that kind of thing. But he points out, like, David Sedaris has attempted to write fiction and no one buys it because it's not very entertaining. Because when you know it's made up, it's not very entertaining. But the sole reason that he's so entertaining is because you're like, Wow, crazy! I can't believe this guy lived through these crazy experiences. Well, he didn't. He's making them up. But he, when you when you claim it as true, it it has this impact that nonfiction do, or yeah, that fiction doesn't have, and that there's something you know, there's something really fundamentally wrong about that to like lie and somehow claim that because your lie is entertaining, it's not a lie. Like I'll give you the lie is very entertaining, but it's still a lie. Yeah. I guess the other part of this that really gets me, um, at least thinking about it as as a sociologist, as someone who, you know, here's what, I mean, here's what bothers me about it. This mindset that you approach this issue and you've got this greater truth of what's going on in these factories in China. 
And you can basically, you know, you're, you, you know, you're an activist at that point exclusively, you know, things that favor your interpretation and your, your take on what people need to know about what's going on there. You, you can embellish that. You can, Oh yeah. I talked to 10 people like that. Oh yeah. Everyone, you know, they're underage worker. They're just like, they're like hanging out everywhere. They're every, you know, you can embellish that stuff as much as you want because it's in service of a greater truth. And then you Mm -hmm. can completely ignore anything that might challenge that or go against it. And I mean, this is kind of an extreme example, but I think you do see this a lot in, even in the, in the social sciences, I think you see this a lot where, um, you know, people become politically and morally invested in their interpretation of the facts and their research program. And, you know, you see this happen where things that don't fit their worldview. I mean, and, and we're not supposed to do this. I mean, it's one thing for like political activists to do this, but you know, like we're not supposed to be doing this, but you know, you see cases of academics doing this too, where, um, something that doesn't fit with their worldview just gets discarded. And, you know, right. something that's small that confirms what they think they can just sort of freely exaggerate the importance of it. Um, and it happens all the time. And this is, you know, this is an example of that. I think it's, it's kind of funny that this is coming up a little bit because, I um I've been writing my dissertation the last couple of days and I'm writing this chapter and one of the things I've been kind of grappling with is like a lot of what my respondents talk about is really traumatic and um it would be really easy to make kind of a sensationalistic story about the respondents and you know and part of me goes yeah this is my job I'll tell this really horrific story and people will know how bad it really is and um and I was talking to somebody who's been helping me out with the with the writing stuff that I, I'm trying to tell a different story and I'm trying to like bracket the traumatic stuff because I'm trying to make a different point because I feel like there's been enough work, enough studies of foster care kids and there's, a, there's enough acknowledgement that they deal with some really traumatic stuff. Enough awareness raising. Yeah. <laughs> that that like like we don't need another report on that stuff and i'm actually trying to say something a bit different and um you know being with this stuff like sometimes it makes you you feel this numbness and when you first read it i mean like i you know i've been reading a little bit about this trauma stuff that like it's hard to get past it and you know i was thinking about like a job talk or presenting my research i i almost don't want to tell that part of the story and this person that was reading my my chapter was like, you know, you really need to like highlight these details about what was going on. And I don't want to lie, but I'm definitely filtering out the traumatic, sensationalistic parts of it um, because it it it's hard to then talk about something else because I know people will get hung up on this like issue, you know. And so I thought it's kind of interesting because it's the direct opposite of this issue because like maybe because I've don't want to be seen as somebody who's being sensationalistic with their data, you know, like I'm, I'm becoming kind of like a poverty pimp with my ethnography, right? Like, like telling these really <laughs> like gruesome stories, you know, like, thank you for saying that we needed a title <laughs> poverty pimp with my ethnography. <laughs> uh, I'll get in trouble for that one. I'm, I'm sure. But you know, like it's, yeah, I would read that article. Um, it's just, uh, it, it's, it's so, selling this, like the wire kind of like scenario, but, 
So that's one of the things I've been grappling with. Like, well, what if I will some... say, uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I mean, no, go ahead. I, I, I'm just actually facing the exact same problem in my research because I actually, when I've presented the research, I try to talk it down in that, like I say, you know, I'm going to have to tell you a lot of things that went wrong, but it's only to kind of illustrate my point because like, I actually worry that I'm just fostering this kind of like, somewhat yeah maybe racist image of iraq as this like backward country where they can't get anything right because i mean ultimately my point is they're not getting this right but it's for a very complex set of factors mostly imposed by the outside world you know and that like but i do worry a lot that i'm just reinforcing this narrative of like oh look these people can't do anything right well, because you almost become like a one-trick pony too like because it's like you're reporting on this like really interesting case with lots of bad things going on that is like the case itself is interesting right and yeah you want to actually you went there you the the novelty of it has worn off to you and now you're actually trying to say something interesting about it but your audience will be hearing for the first time and there'll be i mean it'd be i don't know it'd be you're kind of in a unique situation because your audience is going to want you to tell you like the tell the graphic details of what you saw and exactly uh, you know it's and, not the story yeah and it might not be part of what you're trying to say but maybe because you might be the first one writing about this you, you have that responsibility in a way to, to give that journalistic account um it's a weird dilemma uh, i don't it, it's kind of related to this maybe you should go in this american life and <laughs> give your ethnography Iron glass will really put my cold feet to the fire though you know i don't know how i feel this <laughs> Speaking of stories and narratives, have you guys read The Hunger Games? Ooh, are we really getting into that? <laughs> that was a beautiful segue. Be ashamed to waste it. Here, you know, I'll throw my one Hunger Games related question out there because I've not read the book, I've not seen the movie. How is it not a complete ripoff of Battle Royale? There's my question. And that's all I can contribute to the that's, Hunger Games. That's my proof. I haven't read it or seen the movie nor do i plan to but i've seen a lot of the things that obviously influenced it and that it either is paying tribute to or ripped off but is it such a bad thing if she raises awareness for battle royale (laughs) there's just no well no it would be a good thing if it raised awareness for battle royale because there's no way it's as good as battle royale because now i want to see battle royale i mean when i heard that story in npr i was like wow this sounds like a cool movie i never oh it's a good movie yeah there's a whole bunch of movies. That has it even been officially released in the U.S. yet, or do you still got to get bootlegs? I got I it at a video store on DVD, so... Oh, okay. It's, there's some... Would you I have an old bootleg from before it was available, man. That's kind of <laughs> finger to the pulse action I have. John, did you buy the book? Um, No, I actually... If you... Uh, Amazon, if you have a Kindle, you can get it for free. To, oh really? Yeah, they have like this little like lending library thing you can do, where you can rent some books, and those three books are pretty much the only. Uh, well, there aren't very many really well known books on that list, but those are. But I didn't. I haven't read them, but my wife has, and she read them all really, really, really fast, and told me I should read them, but I haven't. So I'm, I hear they're page turners at least. So I'll probably read them because I'll read anything. Aren't they like technically young adult novels? Or like yep. yeah, nothing wrong with okay. that. Nothing wrong with that. No, there isn't. It just makes me feel <laughs> less bad for having not read them. Well, I mean, you know, if this was some like, you know, I don't know, 
adult book, I guess. I, I don't know what the term is I'm looking for. Well, have you heard about the other adult book that's making the rounds and is now going to be a movie? Not to not to sideline our discussion, but there's this book called Shades of Grey, I think, or Fifty Thousand Shades of Grey, or Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, uh, it's like it's like it, a, it started not. out as Twilight fan fiction, <laughs> and then really? people were super, seriously. It's like Twilight for moms. Yeah, that's what I heard it described as. Someone yeah. wrote Twilight for moms and then changed enough of it to get their own copyright, and now it's going to be a big production. Are there vampires involved, or is it just? Yeah, I think. I. So it's essentially just. A I usually bunch. don't read my erotica until tomorrow. But. <laughs> that's that's what Friday is for. Well, it's it, erotica Friday. I mean, it's not a. You have casual Friday. I have erotica Friday. <laughs> the thing I do like about uh, Hunger Games, though, I and if it is a you know a young adult book, it's it's kind of interesting that it does that. It's like it's it's kind of playing off this reality show framework. You know, there's this game that the kids have to participate in. And as they're preparing for the games, the producers of this game are trying to weave narratives between the characters. And there's at one point where they're like, Oh, it'd be really great if we can like make it seem like this boy loves this girl, but this girl has a boyfriend back at home. And there's this like love triangle and the characters is like, I'm going to die tomorrow. I'm freaking out because I'm going to die tomorrow. But maybe if I do this, you know, um, in the, in the, during the game, the the kids can get sponsors if you you know if they like certain people, and the sponsors can send them things during the games. So the so the participants play up the narrative, and um, you know, and I and I thought like well, this is such an interesting juxtaposition of like reality show production, you know, that the fact that it goes on and like outright violence <laughs> you know and it was like pretty um it's pretty jarring because you have to admit at one end like the book is entertaining because of the violence you know but it's really disturbing that it's entertaining too like it's uh um you know at the end of the day you're like excited that this 14 year old is going to stab this 12 year old and i don't know if it does anything it makes it maybe it makes some kids rethink uh, reality shows, or I'm not sure exactly what it's supposed to make the kids think, but it's. Um, I, I think thought it's supposed to make them want to kill nine year olds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes makes me want to see Battle Royale. I mean, it, it, I imagine the movie is pretty sanitized if it was for um, was it PG or something like that. PG thirteen, I think. PG thirteen. I so, did read a review that said, you know, as entertaining as the movie is, at the end of the day, it's still just like a snuff film of like adolescents killing each other. And it made him felt kind of creepy. And, uh, I certainly understand that aspect to it. Yeah. But yeah, I, I recommend it. It was, it took me about a day and a half to read it. And you know, it is a page turner. It's, I, I feel still feel weird. I should be into the hunger games because I'm so into its influences. I, I like dystopian fiction. It's one of the few kinds of fiction that I've really read a lot of. I loved, uh, the running man, I've never seen that. Never seen that. Is that good? It's it's really oh, good. Yeah. Never seen Running Man. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jesse Ventura, a whole bunch of people. Wow. Um, Lots of governors. <laughs> two future governors and Carl Weathers. Yeah, he should have been the next governor. We'll keep we'll keep an eye on him. But I just avoid the big trendy stuff. Pathologically. <laughs> uh, Glad you enjoy that. I don't know. It's just. 
Nothing. I, mean, I still have never read a Twilight book or a Harry Potter thing or seen any yeah, of the movies. I'm no, not compelled. You've read the Harry Potter stuff, haven't you, John? John? Oh yeah, they're good books. The I audio, mean, the audio books are great. I saw the second movie at the 99 cent theater. I, I, I am even not. There. I am even not too embarrassed to admit that I that I listened to the audiobook of the first Twilight book, just because. <laughs> and you know, was it good? Uh, not particularly. <laughs> the writing is awful. Like that's the thing. That's what everyone says about it. Is it's just it's like it's just really really bad writing. But you know what? It's a page turner though. It's the same thing. It's like you know you kind of want to see what happens. So you just keep. Well, I mean, I listen to the audiobook, but whatever you do, whatever you turn pages in an audiobook, um, you know, there's something about there's, a real scroll there's something sure. about a certain kind of writing where you can recognize the. It's not like the writing's great. And it's not like the characters are particularly deep or impressive, but there's like a certain some books you can just sit there and keep keep reading yeah, anyway. It's, it's like know? junk food, you know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what the trick is, but clearly it's like your brain to doesn't even want to read, but you're like it. It just like flows in. You're like, I want to put it down. And it's yeah. like you've instantly read the page before you put it down. You're like, so, Damn so it. yeah. I mean, so like writers look at you know uh, what's her name Stephanie whatever. Uh, who wrote the books and say, oh, she's a terrible writer. It's awful. But at the same time, you know, I couldn't write something that that many people could pick up and want to read past page three. I couldn't yeah. do it. I don't know. Maybe there's got to be some, there's gotta be some kind of skill to it. I don't know. There probably is. I'm sure you can, like, you know, with any kind of pop culture, you can do an analysis to figure out what people are really into and just cater it to that. And now people don't even care that that's a bit disingenuous or uncreative. But, you know, I listen to the top 40 and it's all regurgitated stuff as, as a matter of practice. It's not just that there's un, like, you know, top 40 sucks or any usual criticism like that. It's part of the way that people who make top 40 music do it is by using the formulas that are already there and adding subtle tweaks to them. And I'm sure it's the same for a certain domain of fiction. It's, there's a certain formula. Part of the reason you might want to keep reading is just that the plot is predictable. You want to see if you're right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do we want to talk about the racial issues in the Hunger Games casting? Oh, I don't even know what that is. (laughs) (laughs) So, it's a weird question to ask you, Arturo, but um, reading, seeing as how you've read the book, could you identify the the race or ethnicity of any of the characters? No. No, I I couldn't. When you picture them, do you picture a certain type of person or a certain skin color or anything like that? Uh, I, I, I viewed most of them as white kids, to tell you the truth. No, You're not alone. <laughs> because apparently, as soon as the film hit the theaters after opening night, a lot of people um, were talking about how the fact that characters they thought were white were cast as black people totally ruined the movie for them. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I just put the link in I guess in the there's one there. character in particular... And this is a growing story. It just made CNN today. Um, there's one character. It's, it's a little girl. She's like 12 years old. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Rue Ru or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, right. Yeah. A lot of people were apparently picturing her as a, a, a blonde, blue-eyed, uh, white girl. But she's cast as, as African-American. Or black, because I guess America doesn't exist anymore. And people said that this was this totally ruined the film for them. Really? Even though I think there is language in the book that it specifically says, yeah, that she's black. Yes, it does for a couple other characters as well. 
That's really funny. I mean, not funny, it's tragic. I'm like, I... It's really depressing. Read, do, click that link and read them if you didn't read them. I mean, it's... Yeah, I'm reading it. Yeah, yeah they're pretty... And they're good. They're a good classroom resource if you want to talk about some issues like this. This is something... I think we've talked about this before with, like... In, like, one of our very first episodes, we were talking about Facebook. Like, someone did some kind of, like, race in Facebook or something. But, you know, there's something about, like... uh the ease with which people can publish stuff like this on Twitter and Facebook. Like, I don't want to think that, I don't know if it's necessarily true that overt public racism is getting worse. Um, but that's interesting. You know, I mean, everyone like has, has had experiences 10, 20 years ago where you're in a room full of homogenous people that are making racist jokes or something. And everyone kind of snickers and you think, that wasn't oh, something that you should I haven't say. had this experience. You've been in that experience, right? Racists. Come on. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I have had but, but, but you know, it's not like you turn on the TV and see it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean at least in that sort of over, like, nakedly racist kind of sentiment, right? Or in the newspaper. Um, and it, if it does happen and, like, on, like, Rush Limbaugh, he's forced to apologize or something or make some fake apology about it, right? But there's something about, you know, people just post stuff like this on Twitter and Facebook. Like they just say stuff and you got to wonder, like, are those the things that, you know, in the past they would have just like said to their friends, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, ha ha. And like, you know, or, or or is it actually, you know, like they're just not even really thinking about the fact that it's a public forum. There's a website called open book. Oh yeah. Yeah. The intention is to show how bad Facebook's privacy policy is where you can search for anyone's name and any word, any topic, anything, and it'll take you to all the people who are talking about that or named that or whatever it is. And the point is for them to say, you know, you can get in touch with this person and tell them to fix their security settings so it's not this public. But the big use of it was people typing in racial slurs and other offensive language and showing just how, well, you can't really say how prevalent it is, but there is a lot of cases of people pretty openly using this kind of language and talking about these issues in a very racist white supremacist way. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you know, you always expect internet comments to be really bad like that, but when it's tied to your account, you expect it to cut down, but that's probably not the case. Maybe because it's so instantaneous, you know, like it cir- circuits your other like parts of your brain that usually filters out this stuff, you know, you're like, Oh, here's something racist. You know, why would you send that out to like all your friends? Um, like, yeah, I mean, these, these comments are pretty ridiculous, but that's just the thing. Like these, like Twitter has so many users now that like, let's, let's just do this as an experiment. Pick something like, I can't think, I'm not clever enough to think of something off the top of my head, but like think of some public event and think of like racist keywords that we could search for. And I bet you can find people saying it. And these are people who like, they might, you know, they might have like, three followers on twitter or something we know nothing about these people but it's so easy to search you know it would be so easy to i mean maybe i'm wrong but it seems like it would be very easy to just put together an article like this with a bunch of screenshots of like six seven eight people saying horribly racist things about anything just because like there's so many people out there and it's so easy to search i don't know maybe Oh, yeah. If you search Twitter for any major event and then also any racial slur, you'll easily come up with many, many people who found a reason to use any particular racial slur about any major event. Yeah. The most horrifying example was the tsunami in Japan. Oh, God. Where the amount of people saying that's what you get for Pearl Harbor 
and other it got worse from there was just astonishing. And still, yeah, you know, I, I saw I maybe a hundred posts that said that. So the question is, how representational was that? But it's yeah, still but I shocking. Think John's I think point too. is right: is that it's uh, people are. It's not necessarily any different. It's just archived and searchable now <laughs> in the Library of Congress. It will be. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just you know you couldn't. You know, even ten years ago, when some major public event happened, and I'm sure all these same people were saying horribly racist things about it, you just didn't know unless you happened to be friends with those people. But now you could search it for hashtags and things like that. And, say, uh, yeah. say like ten years ago, like say nine eleven. Oh yeah. God, yeah, I would oh. hate to see what would be on Twitter if nine eleven <laughs> happened. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 yeah, exactly. You know, there's this interesting. Um, uh, research at Harvard University by this psychologist named Banji who does stuff on implicit racism. And she has this um, – have you guys heard of this? It's I a, think so, and I think the, I'm skeptical. It's, it's a website where you can, do a, you can do this test. And essentially it's this study that she does where you can go to it and, and the screen will pop up and there will be like two words – and it asks you to like, okay, when you think of somebody dirty, do you think of a white person or a black person? When you think of somebody poor, do you think of this or that? And and you're supposed to like make these associations. And but the keyboard changes, and you're actually constantly being disorientated. Or you know, I, I think that's how it works. Like what you think yeah, is right is like really how it's left. Supposed to work. Yeah, and so. The idea is that at one point you give up trying to like try to be like conscientious of what you're pressing and you just start like pressing the buttons. I mean like you just kind of like I'm just going to not think about it and just start processing it. And you know psychologists talk about like all these implicit cognitions that you have that it's it's automatic. It's like your subconscious um, it, it just it's processes information very differently, and so she thinks she's tapping into this implicit cognition, um, and you know she can find if you're implicitly racist, and, and maybe like you know some pretty interesting stuff. I mean, if you if you believe in it, and I was thinking about what John was saying about this Twitter stuff. Maybe it's like you're not even super conscious of it because you're tweeting so much. I mean, maybe you tweet all the time. Maybe you're you know informing the world that you don't even are that conscientious about what you're saying because you're just so used to it you know um but anyway it'd be i i took the study once i think i was determined to be a racist uh and i think it i think it tells you afterwards and i think this is how she collects data but pretty interesting stuff i think the disorientation factor is so high on that that it's impossible not to fall into the trap so to speak hmm. well i've i've read some critiques of it from a programming aspect yeah, that, that the program isn't super well done, but I still think <laughs> even with those critiques, I still think she's getting at something. Um, and, and you know, it's not. I, I mean, there's all sorts of other studies that don't use the same technology that find that you know people, uh, you know, implicitly associate you know black people with the gun or something. You know, yeah. if you're prompted with those kind of things, and so yeah. it's you know, it's there might be problems with this specific program but i think more or less she's on you know capturing something that has been measured by others as well but yeah the question is not that it exists it's the mechanism through which it exists and i think that's where the real i i, I don't know just knowing sure. what little i know about her experiments i don't trust that what she's getting at is the real mechanism but there, yeah there's definitely something there cool i, I thought that went pretty well yeah i think yeah. we got a lot of stuff here 
Have something to say? You can leave us a message at 612-424-AGIL. That's 612-424-2445. Thanks from Sociology Improv, the podcast you accidentally click on when you're looking for sociological images.